0: Now, with all that said, uh, I, I want to ask you this question. Is Easter really a big deal? All right, I've just spent a few minutes talking about Easter's coming up, and we want you to be ready for it. Well, is it a big deal? Uh, th- that's a question we have to ask. Or maybe some of you might ask, what is Easter all about anyway? Maybe you don't know. You might have numerous questions about Easter, and so we're gonna look at this series entitled, as I said, Easter, to help us all understand what is significant about Easter and why we should celebrate it so much. To help us, I want us to start with a definition that I have constructed that's gonna serve as our guide as we go throughout this series. And so look at this definition as it comes up on the screen there. It says, the celebration of God rescuing his creation from the brokenness caused by sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, so that people can have their relationship with Him restored through faith in order that they might live. Now, granted, that's a pretty long and wordy definition, right? I know it is. I knew when I formed it, I said, that's long. But here's what I believe I believe it encapsulates what Easter is really about. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, we're going to break this definition down and look at the various parts so we can understand the true significance of Easter. Today, we're going to start with just the first four words of the definition, which are this, the celebration of God, all right, the celebration of God. Now, in case you're wondering why we start with these words, it because one of the basic questions that people have is this, is there a God? They want to know, is there really a God? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. I've even had times in my life where I said, man, is God real? And you've got people all around you that are asking that question. And so if we're going to celebrate the work of God, we must first make sure that there is a God. Ultimately, I know what people mean when they ask, is there a God? They're really wanting to know this. Is there just one true God who is over everything? We have to answer that question because whether people want to admit it or not, catch this, everyone worships a God of some sort. All right, everyone worships a God of some sort. In one place during my study this week, I found it noted that there are over, ready, 320 million gods. That's with a little g, all right, over 320 in our world today to choose from. And then there are 22 world religions, each, with half, each which have at least a half million followers. Now, when I read that, that's an incredible number to me. And we have to ask who is right. Are, are there really 320 million gods? I mean, some people want to answer that all religions are basically the same. Some people want to say that people are worshiping the same God, but they just give him different names and that everyone has their own path to God. However, when you look at the different religions, you realize quickly that they are not basically the same and the leaders of these religions would point that out rather quickly. I mean, you might find one or two religious leaders that might actually agree to the belief that all paths lead to God, but most would claim that their way is the right way and if you don't believe as they believe, then you are simply wrong. As much as we might want to think that we live in a world of tolerance where all religions are accepted as equal, we have to realize that is simply not the case. And I'm going to go ahead and say, and it shouldn't be the case because all are not equal. Some people take the stance that it doesn't even matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. But let's think about that philosophy. Do I just need to be sincere in what I believe? All right, is that all I need? Well, let me ask you this question. What wonder if you sincerely believe if you flap your arms fast enough that you can fly, all right? And then because you sincerely believe that, you go jump off a 100-foot cliff to prove that, all right? Is your sincerity going to save you? No, it's actually maybe going to be deadly for you in the end, right? Or, or take this. Well, let, let's say you have a kidney disease where you've got to go in and, and you've got to have one of your kidneys removed in order for you to, to live, right? Well, wonder if the doctor does surgery on you, sincerely wanting to help you, sincerely wanting to save your life. But when he gets in there and he does the surgery, he removes the wrong kidney. And in the process, you die. You tell me, was the fact that the doctor was sincere, was that enough, No, right? If you don't believe the right thing or if you don't do the right thing, then sincerity is not enough. And so when it comes to the importance of what you believe and what path you are on, Jesus made something very clear that not all paths are the same. And this is what he said in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, according to the words of Jesus, the path to life is a narrow path. And if the path is narrow, then we need to be careful to make sure that we find the right path and that we stay on it. And in case you think we shouldn't take the words of Jesus seriously, let me even remind you that most all world religions have a high view of Jesus Christ. And though they may not recognize him as the son of God, they at least recognize him as a good, loving, moral teacher. In these world religions, he is a person to model our life after and to live by. We're to listen to his teachings. Well, folks, listen, if that's true, if his teachings, if we consider his teachings and we listen to them, he told us the way is narrow. How do you ignore that? All right, how do you say, oh, we're going to accept his teachings, but then do not listen to what he says. Even these world religions that do not recognize him as savior of the world, they have to at least take his word seriously that the path is narrow and not broad. All religions do not end up in the same place. And so if you believe the wrong thing, it will have eternal consequences for your life and can truly be deadly. Now, with that said, it's important now that we turn to the words of Genesis 1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open. Genesis 1, 1. We're gonna be right there in the beginning today because look at how the Bible starts. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, those might be just 10 words, but they are 10 words that speak volumes. Those words declare that there is one God who created all things, right? There is one God who created all things. These words do not leave room for there being a multitude of gods. There is one God who is over all things. So much of the debate we have today is where did everything originate from? This often creates a debate between science and religion. In the world that we live in today, so many people want to position religion against science. All right, we do that, and I want to ask, why? Why do we pit those, all right? They say well, you got to choose between religion and science. You have to choose between there being science or a creator God. I'm not sure why they feel that way, because there shouldn't be a separation, for I'm going to say this, science does not negate God. In fact, science points us to God, all right? We probably should have been an amen on that one, Okay? Maybe you say, well, what are you talking about? I don't believe that. It's hard for me to say amen to something I don't believe. Well, let's take the beginning of things. Scientists seek to explain the beginning of matter as we know it, and so through the years there have been various theories. The theory that in our day has been widely accepted is the Big Bang Theory. This theory began with Albert Einstein publishing his equations of general relativity in 1915, followed by a Dutch astronomer named Wilhelm de Sitter, if I can say his name right, who predicted an expanding universe. What these two suggested is that if the universe is expanding, then there had to be a starting point. Therefore, there was a point when it did not exist, but it suddenly came into existence. Now, with the idea of the universe having a starting point being established, in 1923, Edwin Hubble observed the Andromeda Nebula, which led to the conclusion that the universe exploded into existence with a furious burst of energy, and it's been expanding ever since. This Big Bang Theory was not accepted at first because as Robert Jastrow, an American astronomer and planetary scientist stated in an interview with Christianity Today, he stated this. He said, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces that they cannot hope to discover, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work now. I think a scientifically proven fact. All right. You hear what he's saying? What he's saying is this is that God and science do not conflict with each other, but in fact, science proves that there is the need for a creator God who created the universe with design. Scientists may not say God. They may say something like a supernatural force, all right? But we understand God as that supernatural force, We shouldn't be surprised that scientists end up in a place where they seek to explain a supernatural force that calls a universe with design. Because if you read in Genesis 1, 1, what we do read about God, or back in Genesis 1, what we read about God's work of creation, it was done purposely, all right? It wasn't done haphazardly. In fact, look back at Genesis 1 again, now verses 3 and 4. Look, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light and the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, did you notice that what God did in creation, he did with purpose? I mean, he separated the light and the dark. He called the light day and the darkness night. And that is just what we see in our realm. But if you look even at all of the scripture, God's word speaks to the expanse of the universe. Think about this, all right? He created the whole universe. He created it with design. And even before, hear me, we had telescopes to say how big our universe is, all right? You understand today, you cannot number the stars, right? All right, If you've ever been like me and you grew up in the country, you go out at night, sometimes the dark night, and you look at the stars and you say, if I spend long enough time, I think I can count all the stars, Right? Okay, So so by the naked eye, if you want, you can spend some time trying to do that. But before we had the telescope that could say, look, our universe is so expanding, there's no way we can number all the stars. This is what it said in Jeremiah 32, the host of heavens cannot be numbered. God already knew that from the beginning. Why? Because he's the one who created the expanse of our universe. Amen? You see, the simple statement was a confirmation that the planets in our universe are far too great to number which if just stand out at night, again, and look, again, we, we probably would think we could, but God's word confirmed that they are innumerable because he, again, is the one who created it. He knows its magnitude. Now, in case you're wondering, why is all this important, all right? But let's go, why are you sharing this? Why is this important? Well, let's turn over to Romans 1 now if you have your Bibles, because look at what we're told there in regards to the ability to know that there is a God. We're gonna begin in verse 19 in Romans 1. Look at what it says. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, that being people, are without excuse. You see, here the Apostle Paul is writing out a clear theology of what Christianity is. And he starts with the basics of declaring this, that people are without excuse when it comes to knowing that there is a God. Paul declares that God has shown himself to the world through the things that he has made. And though God has invisible attributes, they can all be seen in the things that God has created. When you look around, Paul declares that you cannot say there is no God. (coughs) As we look and admire the world around us, even as we study the world around us, Paul is saying, That God is shouting back to us, I am real and I am here. We looked at how science really points us to God and we could go on and say that science is really just the study of God's creation, but philosophers of well have sought to help us understand the way in which God has revealed himself to us so that we can know him. Now, what I'm getting ready to share with you, I know this is a little technical, so I hope you picked up an outline today that you can write some things in today. I'm going to share some big words with you, so please don't get caught up in the complexity of these words. All right, is this a deal? Don't get caught up in the complexity of these words. Just consider what I'm explaining or what they're saying to us. Because if a detective is investigating to discover what has has or who has done something, what do they look for? They look for clues, right? And one of the big things we'll look through if we're being a detective is we're gonna look for fingerprints because a fingerprint can point us to who maybe did the crime or did the action, whatever the case, all right? In the case of God, philosophers have discussed fingerprints of sorts that God has left to help us know who he is and to know that he has acted. These fingerprints are labeled into four categories. Here's the four categories, all right? There's the cosmological fingerprint, all right? There's the teleological fingerprint, big words, I told you, right? These next two aren't quite so big. Then there's the moral fingerprint and then the the desire fingerprint. What I want you to do this afternoon, go home, memorize these four, all right, so later you can impress your friends. I got some big words for you, right? You can go talk about those, all right? Now, what I want to do is just do a quick explanation of what these four are. What are these four fingerprints? How do they point us to God? The cosmological fingerprint, I will not spend much time on because it relates back to the scientific argument we just mentioned. This argument simply says that when you look at the world, you have to know that there is a beginning. It recognizes that even though much can be understood about our universe, that no one has ever been able to explain how it came to be other than to say that it has to be God. Nothing doesn't come from nothing without there being a supreme being to create it. And so when we look and see everything in the cosmos, we must conclude there is a God. Now, the teleological fingerprint relates somewhat to the first, but it makes note of how the world seems to be designed with purpose and specifically designed for us. Take, for example, ecologists have noted this, that if the level of oxygen in our atmosphere dropped by just 6%, we would all suffocate and die, okay? But if it increased by 4%, 4%, the planet would erupt into a giant fireball. Even more delicate than that, if the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 0.5% higher, our world would be an oven, all right? It would become an oven. Or if it were, catch this, 0.02% lower, we would not have an atmosphere at all. Now if that is not enough for you to consider the delicate design of our world the cosmologists tell us that if the earth was 2% closer to the sun then it would be too hot for water to exist and if it was not tilted exactly at 23.5 degrees the temperatures would be even more extreme and we would all die okay now for those who look at this information and say well we just got lucky right, we just got lucky, that somehow by chance, as the particles in the universe were evolving, everything just happened to fall into place and create our worlds. If that's you, you need to understand that the statistical probability of this world just happening into existence is basically impossible, All right, when you look at just the DNA, all right, if you look just at the DNA and its complexity, to say it happened by chance, it would be the same as saying this. You ready? To say DNA happened by chance, it'd be the same as saying this, that there was an explosion at an ink factory, and that explosion caused all the works of Shakespeare. All right? All right? All right, so you get the picture, right? Just happened, an explosion, and when an explosion happened, ink went everywhere, and when it fell, it fell into letters, and it fell not only into letters, letters in sequence to make words, and not only words, words in sequence that created all the volumes of Shakespeare's work. Do you understand how improbable that is? I hope you understand that. The fact that our world has such a design points to the fact that there had to be a designer behind it. There had to be one who planned things just the way they are. Let me remind you the words of Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created, all right? Now, after the teleological argument, you have the moral fingerprint. This argument points to the reality that there is within every person, hear me, within every person, there is a sense of right and wrong. Now, people might disagree on what is right and wrong, but they know that some things are right and some things are wrong. I even understand this, that in prison, they have their own moral code. Did you, are you aware of that? In prison, even some people prisoners look at other prisoners and say they're bad people. Right? namely this if they do they perpetrate crimes against innocent children in prison you are considered the worst of the worst all right even in prison they have some sense of morality to say some things are right and some things are wrong right now this inherent morality is what paul alludes to in romans 2:15 where he wrote this they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them, all right? When some people want to simply talk about the survival of the fittest, as humans, we recognize that God has a standard of right and wrong. Therefore, we don't simply prey on the weak of humanity to eliminate them so that the strong can survive. Our morality teaches us that we care for the weak, amen? Amen. Right, It's what it teaches us. We know inherently we, we don't be survival of the fittest. We don't just wipe the weak out. Our morality tells us we take care of those who are weak. This morality the Bible teaches is a morality that comes from God. Therefore, they, this fact that people have this inherent morality attests to God. Now, yes, some depart from this morality, but in the end, we consider that evil and in opposition to what we inherently know, and it is an opposition to a holy God, all right? Now, the fourth fingerprint is the desire fingerprint. This fingerprint recognizes that within every person, there is a desire for something beyond the material things that the world can offer. Ultimately, we would say it is the desire for the eternal. I know this is true because in Ecclesiastes 3:11, this is what we are told about God. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and look at this next part. And he has put what? Eternity into man's heart. In other words, God has placed inside our hearts eternity where the only thing that ultimately will fulfill that is him and that nothing in this world will ever be able to fulfill that desire that we have from eternity apart from God. Our deepest longings can only be fulfilled in him, all right? You understand that? C.S. Lewis said it best when he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires, unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is a such thing as food, right? Y'all follow me so far, right? A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is a such thing as water, right? Men feel sexual desires. Well, there is a such thing as sex, right? If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, hear me, so if there is a desire I have in me that nothing in this world can, all right, can can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I am made for another world, all right? If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing, all right? Do you understand what C.S. Lewis is saying? He's saying God has put this desire inside our heart that nothing on this world will ever satisfy. Maybe you've wondered, how come I never can be satisfied? How come nothing ever makes me happy, all right? It's because maybe you've not let the one thing that can satisfy you satisfy, and that is God, all right? These arguments are, listen, so because there's such thing as love and purpose that, that can never really even be fully satisfied in this world, then there must be something beyond the world that can be satisfied, and that is God himself. It says that God has placed that desire there so that we would look to him and find ultimate satisfaction in him alone. Now, as I share that, let me say this. These fingerprints are not full proof of God, all right, but they are the evidence that points us to God, all right. Does that make sense what I'm saying? All right, these, these fingerprints, like, they're just evidence, all Right? right. They're, they're not the full proof there is of God, but they're the evidence that points us to God. They are the things that Paul alludes to that really help us see the individual, invisible qualities of God in the world around us. When we look at everything together, it leaves us to look and say, There must be a God in order for all of this to make sense. Now, granted, what I've done for you this morning is I've just scratched the surface. Hope you understand that right. I gave you some technical stuff. Do you understand I'm just scratching the surface? I I could give you much more from the scientific world and even the world of philosophy that that would help us see the reality of God. And if you need more or want more, listen, there's a lot more that you can read. I'll be glad to put books in your hands because people have been writing for centuries about this stuff. People who, I will say this, are deep thinkers who are much smarter than this guy, right? I have to rely on smart people because I'm not very smart. And so if you wanna read more about this, I'll be glad to point you to them so that you can read. All right, how can I know that there is a God? And they can give you all these arguments in detail. They can show you how science Talk, point you to God, how all these philosophies, they point us to God, all right? But, but see, see, you want to know who I am? I'm the kind of person that reads Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning, God created, and guess what? I just believe it, right? Now, now, I will say this, not only do I just believe it, I've had life experiences, enough life experiences that said, what has happened to my life? There's too much for me to say it's just coincidence, I have to look and say, the Bible tells me God created. And when I look at my life, the way things have fallen into place, I just have to say there is a God. Coincidence can never explain those things. Now, as we consider, though, what I've said today, we have to ask this morning what does this really mean? Remember, we're asking questions about Easter. We're wanting to know is Easter something we should celebrate? Is it really a big deal? If the events of Easter were events that were carried out by a holy God who acted, then we should accept that, yes, Easter is worth celebrating. However, the words of Roman 1 help us understand the true significance of knowing there is a God. I didn't read this verse earlier, but I will now, so look at Romans 1.18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress... The truth, okay? Now, remember, the key to this message today is recognizing that man is without excuse in knowing God. He has made himself plain to us. And since God not only can be known and has made himself known, we have no excuse. We might, we might ask, I mean, no excuse for what? Well, the obvious is no excuse for not believing in God, but the real answer is even more than that. Because it's not just about knowing God It's about knowing his truths and living by his truths. You see, the reason the wrath of God is mentioned in this verse is because when people fail to recognize God, then they live life however they want. When they live life however they want, it is often in opposition to the will of God and the truth that he has revealed to us. But if you accept that there is a holy God, it demands, you ready? It demands that you live in accordance to his will. You should not suppress the truth, as it said in Romans 1 18, but rather you should live by the truth of God who created you and has a plan for your life. I mean, let's be honest. Here is the real reason many people want to reject there is a God. You can tell me if you agree with this, right? Here's the real reason many people reject that there is a God. If you admit that there is a holy God, then you have to give up your right to be your own God or make a God in your image, Right? In other words, you have to reject a God all right, who does not do what you want. If you accept there is a holy God, then you have to accept there will be times when that God asks you to do something different. Difficult to I me. Mean, right? If you accept that there is a holy God, you accept there are times that it might require sacrifice of your life for him. In fact, some people living in certain cultures uh, in where they live, their sacrifice causes them to lose their life because they proclaim one true God. If you accept there is a holy God, then you have to accept that there is a way he wants you to live, that God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. It's not popular opinion. But because people don't want to be told what to do, they would much rather reject God than accept his existence. His existence. Now, I hope today that this little, what I've shared either has helped persuade you that there is a God or maybe has given you some information to talk to someone else who's struggling with the fact that there is a God. But as we move to a close today, let me give you a few practical things this means for us this morning, all right? If there is a God, what does this mean to our life? Let me give you three real quick practical things that means for you. Since there is a God, he is worthy of our worship, Revelation 4:11 says, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You see, when you look around at the wonders of this world, every day you should give praise to God. Everyday life, all right, every day of your life is a gift from Him. Everything you have is a gift from Him. And because everything was created by Him and exists through Him, every moment of your lives should be a moment of worship. Yes, we worship Him when we gather together as a body of believers here on Sundays. And this should be full of energy. It should be full of thanksgiving. But beyond that, I'm here to tell you, every second that you live should be lived in worship of God, where you say, God. I am living to please you because you are worthy. You hear me? Every second, God, I'm gonna praise you with my life. By the things that I do and by the things that I say, God, I'm gonna give you worship of my life because you are worthy of everything. You are worthy of my worship. See, I hope today that you'll recognize that there is a God and your worship won't stop when you leave out those doors today. But worship is really just beginning as you go out to praise him in the world and let the world know that there is a God. So he's worthy of our worship. Well, since there is a God second, his design and purpose is what truly matters. Listen to these verses, all right, from Psalm 1, Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will what? Stand. You need to understand that God's purposes will prevail. If you are just living life for yourself, if you're just living life for yourself, you will end up nowhere. Okay? You got that? However, if you live your life in such a way where you are living to fulfill God's design and purpose for your life, then here's where you're going to end up. Are you ready? You're going to end up a place where you have peace. You're gonna end up a place where you have joy. You're gonna end up where you have a place of fulfillment and so much more when you look to God and say, God, you created this world, you created me. God, you have a purpose for this world, you have a purpose for me, and when you're living out that purpose, again, you'll find fulfillment that you'll never find anywhere else if you're just simply living for yourself, all right? It always ends up empty, all right, when I'm living for myself. However, again, when you live for God's purpose, you'll find joy beyond measure. Therefore, if you haven't been living your life for God as, or living as if there is no God, just pursuing your own agenda, here's what I pray for you today. I pray that you will recognize that there is a God who has a design for your life specifically, who is pursuing you, all right, and wants you to fulfill his purpose so that you might have joy, life, and peace. And I pray today that you will start worshiping that God and begin to live out his purposes in your life. Number three, since there is a God, you should accept his gospel. That's life in Jesus Christ. In reality, this is where everything will culminate in a few weeks when we consider completely if Easter really is special and if we really should celebrate Easter. It will culminate here in a few weeks, but I would be amiss if I didn't mention now that God who designs and works with purpose made a way for us to be rescued from our sin, which led to death and experienced life. Listen to the words of Second Timothy 1, 8 through 10. He said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in his suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because our works, but look at this, but because of what? His own purpose, all right, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before, look, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, some people want to argue that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make sense. I will confess to you that when you explain the gospel which says that God came to earth in flesh as Jesus' the son, who then led a perfect life in order that he may sacrifice his life for our sin, who is then buried in a borrowed tomb before he rose again to prove who he was and to prove that he could forgive sin and give eternal life, I will admit to you, that sounds a little strange, all right? But I'm gonna say this, all Right, It does sound like a strange plan, Sounds like a strange plan that I wouldn't come up with. However, it is the plan and the design of a holy God who is working to rescue his creation. Therefore, you should accept what Jesus did because it is God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus would come and die for your sins. It is God's plan that by faith in Jesus Christ, you might be forgiven and given eternal life. It is the plan of a holy God, and since it's his plan, we should follow his plan. Amen? Now, this morning, as we move to an invitation, I do not know what your need is. Some of you might have just been needing some reassurance today. Maybe you've been having doubts about God, and this message has affirmed in you your belief in God. Why not take then this invitation time to worship that only true God today? Take this moment of invitation to lift your praises to him and sing to that God and say, oh Lord, I love you and I'm so thankful that you have created me and created this world and worship him as we sing. Or come to this altar and kneel before him and say, Lord, I just wanna praise you as I kneel before you and worship you in this moment. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe even in that, you might need to recommit your life or confess sin or commit to ministry. Whatever it is, let God have his way in your life this morning. Now, others this morning, it's not that you've doubted God, but you haven't been living for his purposes, let today be the day that you commit to living out God's purposes for your life. Let today be the day when you move beyond just having God in your life on Sundays to where you let God be in your life 24 seven, right? That he is the one that leads your life every moment of every second. And maybe you need to come and say, God, you know what I've been doing. I've been coming. I've been playing church. I've been coming. I've been singing like I worshiping you, but God, you know I've been living for you Let today be the day you come and say, God, 24-7, I'm yours. You created me. You love me. You got a plan for my life. God, I'm going to worship you 24-7. Maybe that's a commitment you need to make. And then others today, you need to come and find life in Jesus. You know that you have died because of sin. You feel the emptiness in your life. You feel the deadness in your spirit. You don't even know what it is. You just know that you feel empty inside. Well, you need to come today confessing your sin, confessing your belief in what Jesus did for you and committing your life to God and move forward in that. If that is you, I pray that you come this morning and you come without delay because I'm here to tell you because God has placed eternity in our heart, you will never be satisfied apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to come to him. So we're gonna move this invitation and I don't, again, know what all the needs are today but it's open to whatever. Brother Jacob's gonna be over here standing. I'm gonna be over here. If you need somebody to talk with or pray with, we'll be there to greet you. Or if you just wanna come to this altar alone this morning, you come and kneel and you talk to your heavenly father who loves you. Or maybe you can even right there in that seat. Maybe there's something you need to do. Maybe you're not able to come to the altar right there where you are. I want you to pray to that holy God if you have a need today. Because if nothing else, every one of us should worship him, right? Nothing else. I want you to sing your praises to a glorious God. All right, let's pray together. Would you bow with me, Father? As we come to this time of our service, Lord, I know that this is a holy moment because, God, anytime we are presented with an opportunity, Lord, to make commitments to you or make a decision for you or to pray to you, Lord, those are, those are big moments. I think sometimes, Father, what we do is we get in our routines and we just make this a common moment. We just make it another part of our worship service and we check it off and say that part's done. Father, this morning as we come to this invitation time, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just go through the motions, that indeed, Father, you would come and meet us here And Father, there'd be people this morning who come and truly do business with you. Whatever that is, make a decision for you, Lord. I know there are some this morning that need to come and just kneel at this altar. They've, They've brought unconfessed sin in this place, God, and they need to kneel before you. I pray that they would come and not be embarrassed in a moment, but just coming knowing that there's a God who's waiting to hear from them and they would step out boldly and come and confess that sin. There are some this morning that just need to come, God, because they have not been expressing their love for you as they should and they just need to come and kneel and worship you this morning God because again you deserve more and they need to come father and do that I pray they would there's some that need to make commitments of all sorts maybe some need to come and commit to ministry you've been calling them and they've been saying no and they need to come this morning to say yes there may be some that need to come and commit to baptism because they've been putting it off they know they gave their life to you but for some reason they're nervous they're afraid and they are, they haven't stepped out and never made that public commitment through baptism, God, I pray today would be the day they'd step out and say, I'm not ashamed of this mighty God who created me. And they'd come, they'd make that commitment. Father, whether they ever in need, again, some who need to come, give their life to Jesus. Lord, I pray that, that Jacob and I would be filled with people talking of their need for Jesus today, Lord, because I know you want people to be saved. Lord, you want a relationship with them for all of eternity, that eternity you've put in their heart. You wanna live with them forever. And today we know the only way that happens is through faith in Jesus. And I pray some today would come and give their life to you, Lord. So Lord, have your way in this moment. I know my words have not been complete today, but God, as a perfect holy God, you can help people hear what they need to hear. Lord, you can speak to their spirits even now in this moment. And I pray, Father, the voice that they would hear today is not my voice, but Father, they would hear your voice and they would respond to you. And so bless this time, pour your spirit out as we sing to you. And as I pray these things, I pray them in Jesus' name, amen.